Well, um, let me just quickly um, tell you about uh, the next work in progress talk um, while we're waiting, uh, which does not happen a week from today, but happens two weeks from today on November 4th, Friday, November 4th, in this room at this time. Our speaker will be Lynn Stephen, Professor of Anthropology and 22-23 OHC Faculty Research Fellow. Uh, Lynn Stephen will be speaking on the topic of what is justice addressing violence against indigenous women in Guatemala. So that's on uh, Friday, November 4th at noon in this location. So at this point, let me introduce our speaker for today. Uh, my colleague Sarah Wald, who is an Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and English at the University of Oregon and a 2022-23 Oregon Humanities Center Research Fellow. Sarah is affiliated with Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies, the Center for Environmental Futures, Food Studies, and the Center for Latino, Latina, and Latin American Studies. Sarah's research and teaching focuses on the relationship between race and the environment, immigration and citizenship, food studies, environmental justice, and nature and popular culture, with particular interest in a comparative approach to Asian American and Latinx literature and culture. Professor Wald's first book, The Nature of California, Race, Citizenship, and Farming Since the Dust Bowl, focuses on the paradoxical ways that farmers and farm workers in California have been re represented from the 1930s to the start of the 21st century. Sarah is also the co-editor of the volume Latinx Environmentalism's Place, Justice, and the Decolonial, which is co-edited with our former colleague David Vasquez, Priscilla Ibarra, and our former graduate student, who is now also a professor, Sarah Jaquette Ray. And this volume accounts for the ways that Latinx cultures are environmental, but often do not assume the mantle of environmentalism. Contributions which focus on film, visual art, and literature and engage in fields such as disability studies, animal studies, and queer studies emphasize the role of racial capitalism in shaping human relationships to the more than human world and reveal a vibrant tradition of Latinx decolonial environmentalism. And I should also say that the introduction to this book is by Lara Polito, who is one of our fellows this year. And um, the afterword is by Stacey Alimo, who is a, another colleague in, in English and Environmental Studies. So really That's a really cool book. Um, Professor Walt has also published articles in the journal uh, Diagolo, Dialogo, Western American Literature and Food, Culture, and Society, as well as book chapters in the volumes Service Learning and Literary Studies in English, Asian American Literature and the Environment, American Studies, Evil Criticism and Citizenship, and The Grapes of Wrath, A Reconsideration. Today, Sarah Wald presents her work in progress, part of her new book in progress, and the title is Hashtag Diversity Outdoors, Storytelling in the Outdoor Diversity Movement and Environmental Justice on Public Lands. Please join me in welcoming Sarah Wald. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm going to set my timer to keep me from going over, hopefully. Um, I want to start by acknowledging that we are on California land. I know there is a lot of discourse around land acknowledgments as purely performative. I spent most of my childhood and adult life never thinking about the fact that I was on indigenous land and until the University of Oregon, I probably couldn't have told you whose land I was on 
So for me, it's an important thing for me to mark in my own scholarship, my own speaking, so that I can think about it today and throughout my scholarship. It's really, um, it's not enough to do land acknowledgements, but I, I find the meaningful for my own um, sense of who I want to be in the world to remember in talking, especially about talking about outdoor recreation and public lands that we are currently sitting on Kalapuya lands. I deeply uh, reject the individual author genius model of academia. The scholarship I'm going to present today comes out of a vast amount of reading of other scholars' work, individual conversations with more people than I can list, but including David Vasquez and Sergio Ketray, Priscilla Solis Yabara, and Gabriela Nunez. Uh, in the Latinx Environmentalisms Project and a forthcoming Latinx Recreation Project, uh, as well as uh, comments from people like Jennifer James and Carolyn Finney on works in progress that have really reshaped how I think about this work. I'm also deeply indebted to the Oregon Humanities Center that, um, and the Center for Environmental Futures, which have sponsored both previous and this research. I'm as you heard, currently working on my second monograph, which examines storytelling in the outdoor diversity movement. The outdoor diversity movement coalesced in the early 21st century United States to redress inequities in outdoor recreation and in public lands access, use, and employment. It involves organizations like Latino Outdoors and Outdoor Afro. There are hundreds of these organizations, many of which were founded in the 2012 to 2016 period. It involves sponsorships by companies like REI, Patagonia, and Keene, and specific initiatives by the National Park Service and the U.S. Forest Service. While the movement as a whole defines, defines diversity to include body size, ability, gender, and sexuality, I am particularly interested in the organization's social media accounts and cultural productions that confront the whiteness of outdoor recreation and public lands conservation. You've heard a little bit about my first two books. I think it's useful to think about how my work fits into that model. In my first book, I was really interested in farm labor, outdoor labor, and how that farm labor served as a place to navigate the relationship between race, nature, and nation. And in this project, I'm looking at race, nature, and nation, but through the lens of leisure rather than labor, um, and, and how this, uh, outdoor recreation and these other ways I think about public lands serve as a similar site in which people are negotiating those tensions. And I'm also really interested in the production of an alternative body of environmentalisms from the dominant form of white environmentalism that we're all the mo most, most familiar with. And so that's really continuing in my mind, this current project is building off of the intersection of these two previous works. So as someone in environmental studies, when this movement showed up, I had lots of questions. Uh, we've spent years talking about the problems of outdoor recreation and the wilderness model and the, the ways in which those are colonialist models of engagement with the environment and the ways in which they come out of very particular histories of eugenics in the United States. So what does it mean to see a movement that's really thinking about uh, people of color, black people, indigenous people, um, women, queer people in these spaces that, in which they've been written out of. So some of the questions 
that I had was to what extent is this sort of a model of neoliberal multiculturalism where you've got these corporate sponsorships that are interested in sort of marketing to new niche audiences, um, right, uh, and, and creating a market for their products through incorporating a broader array of people, but still being very exclusionary and not changing very much this model of what it means to do outdoor recreation in wilderness. And to what extent is there really a deep reconsideration of both what outdoor recreation is and can be and what wilderness, nature, environment can and, and should be um, in these projects? I, as I mentioned, really interested in how these works, this movement thinks about outdoor recreation and public lands as a place to investigate identity, nature, and nation. And I'm really interested in the relationship of the outdoor diversity movement to settler colonialism, right? There's this long history of thinking about public lands as emerging and as an ongoing settler colonial project. So what do we think about the outdoor diversity movement? How is it engaging with settler colonialism? But I'm also really interested in why this movement, why now? It is, right, I said there's hundreds of organizations, there's hundreds of thousands of people, there's a real impact that's happening, including a presidential memorandum under the Obama administration. In a moment where we're paying so much attention, there's a sort of a new racial justice movement coming out with Black Lives Matter, an urgency of climate justice. Why is this movement emerging in this particular moment and how is it articulated in relationship to both of those other movements, climate justice and Black Lives Matter, um, racial justice movements, right, AAPI movements against AAPI hate, um, because it is. Um, and that, for me, has a lot to do with the question of leisure and pleasure that's at the center of the outdoor diversity movement. The kinds of sources I look at in this project are, they're pretty broad range. I'm interested in uh, the organizations and their social media presence Right, their Instagram page, their Twitter feed, the countless blogs. Most of these organizations actually started as blogs. I'm also interested in the uh, children's literature that has come out of the movement, um, the graphic novels. Christian Cooper, who you probably remember was the Black Bird Watcher in Central Park, has a um, graphic novel called It's a Bird. Um, there's numbers of film. There's work we would identify as more... Um, literary, like World of Wonders or J.G. Lanham's The Home Place. So I've got a, a range of different kinds of both movement stories and cultural productions that are aligned with the movement that I'm looking at. And I'm really excited about today because I mostly give public talks about this where I talk to environmental groups about why diversity in the outdoors matters and what groups can do about it. So I'm really excited to wear a more academic hat today and to take you through a case study of one of the sets of texts that I'm looking at. So for the next 40 minutes or so, I'm gonna dive into Latino Outdoors' Yo Cuento blog. And I'm looking at the blog post between February 2014, which is when they started, and June 2022. And I'm considering the blog as worthy of literary analysis, right? What do we think about when we think about these blog posts like we would think about the work of John Muir or Edward Abbey or Terry Tempest Williams? And in doing so, I'm positioning these blog contributors as producers of knowledge. And my approach to the Yo Cuento blog aligns most closely with what literary scholar Paula Moya has termed a socio-formal approach to close reading. 
which she describes as attention to the, quote, social dimensions of literary form by describing how the thematic and formal features of a text mediate the historically situated cultural and political tensions expressed in a world of literature. As Moya notes, this socio-formal approach allows us to, quote, excavate the ideological investments promoted by any given text. So through this socio-formal close reading, I identify the, the Yoquinto blog as a form of transmedia testimonio, which isn't my term, and I'll define it in a little bit. And I argue that this transmedia testimonial produces a Latinx outdoor recreation identity, which is my term, but I'm drawing heavily on Derek Christopher Martin's work on the racialized outdoor leisure identity. And I argue that this Latinx outdoor recreation identity that's produced by the Yo Cuento blog emerges from familial connections that precede and exceed the nation state. In this way, it produces a kind of transnational Latinx environmentalisms that counters the US exceptionalism that's at work in traditional white settler conservation. And I argue that this Latinx outdoor recreation identity also challenges the structures of racial capitalism that attempt to reduce Latinx peoples to their productivity and their labor identities. And as in both of those arguments, I'm exposing the intertwining of material and ideological barriers, that we can't think about these sort of structural barriers, material barriers like transportation and justice, as separate from this ideological barrier, sort of how outdoor recreation gets seen, right? Camping is a white thing, right? That people remember that things white people do list that was popular a couple decades ago. So the, the route I'm gonna take you on, my sort of pathway through this material, is I'm gonna start with some context about Latino outdoors and the outdoor diversity movement. I'm gonna talk about this term transmedia testimonio. Then I'm gonna move into the ideological material barriers, transnational Latinx environmentalisms, and ends with racial capitalism. In, in the piece, in the, the things that I've got published or, or coming out soon, I talk about conservation cultura as a strategic environmental essentialism, drawing on the work of Laura Polito. And um, I also talk at length about the Oquento blog in relation to settler colonialism. I'm leaving both of those out because you don't want me to talk for two hours, but please ask me about those. <laughs> So I could give you a lot of numbers. The precise numbers vary from survey to survey, but they all tell the same story, which is that black people, Latinx people, Asian Americans, and indigenous people are all significantly underrepresented, not only as visitors to national forests and national parks, but as employees. Um, and they're underrepresented as well as participants in conventional outdoor recreation, like camping, hiking, hunting, fishing, paddling, and wildlife watching. So for many of these, categories, we'd say that white people in the US are about 60% of the population, and the numbers we see tend to be like 94, 95% of the visitors, the participants, the employees. The outdoor diversity movement, as I mentioned, emerges in the 21st century, and it works to increase the diversity of public land users and recognize a more varied range of activities as outdoor recreation. It also is really invested in shifting the historical narratives that state and federal lands tell and creating equitable employment numbers among land management and outdoor recreation professionals. You can think about Dorsita Taylor's work with the Green 2.0 project here is aligned with this. But I think it's important to recognize that it fits into a much longer history of organizing against the material and ideological exclusions from these places and activities. Um, and if you look at the history of black 
organizing against outdoor apartheid. There's just an amazing stories throughout the 20th century, and it's part of um, actually part of the story of the National Park Service and how um, it becomes the first federal agency to officially desegregate is because of the work of groups like the NAACP. Latinxes have long been central players in the contemporary outdoor diversity movement. They've been there since the beginning. There's so many amazing organizations, Latino Outdoors, Vive Northwest, Unmar de Colores, Green Latinos, Hispanic Access Foundations, Hispanic Enjoying Camping, Hecho and the out, Camping Hunting and the Outdoors, or Hecho, they're called. Um, really groups ranging from camping, hunting, to like surfing. Um, and these organizations transform popular understandings of both nature and recreation in ways that recognize alternative and often longstanding ways of relating to the more than human world. Latino Outdoors is one of the most well-known and influential organizations representing Latinx participation in the outdoor diversity movement. And Jose Gonzalez, who's the person you see here, uh, who's an environmental educator and influencer, has a master's degree in national resource management from the University of Michigan, founded the organization in 2013. As David Flores and Carmen Kuhn have documented in their excellent analysis of the organization, Latino Outdoors provides diverse and family-focused outdoor recreation opportunities. It's really intergenerational, that's their emphasis. Um, and they use both storytelling and cutting-edge social networking technology, not only to create avenues for access to public lands, but to build a Latino-centered message of environmental awareness and belonging. In addition to national staff and a board of directors, Latino Outdoors mobilizes a national network of volunteer leaders who organize their events. As of 2020, right, there's a clear shift with the pandemic and when we look at these numbers of people at events. Um, but in 2020, when the pandemic hit, they had 120 volunteers in over 20 locations. And in 2019, the, the sort of pre-pandemic numbers we have, these volunteers led more than 190 outings, reaching 3,300 participants. They pivoted online in 2020, resulting in 12,000 views and signups that year as part of their virtual and socially distance events. Their online network forums play a pivotal role in their organizing and their strategy. It started as a blog and an online networking platform, as did Outdoor Afro, as did about a dozen other of these groups like Outdoor Asian. And as Latino Outdoors explains, the Yo Cuento blog, quote, helps change the mainstream narrative into one that is more representative of the diverse community of outdoor enthusiasts. The Yo Cuento program, which is broader than the blog, but started with the blog, uh, it reached 15,000 Facebook followers, 37,000 Instagram followers, and 12,000 Twitter followers by the end of 2020. By June 2022, by June 2022, the Yo Cuento blog, which is all crowdsourced um, contributions, had over 150 posts, the majority by unique individuals. And Yo Cuento translates to English with multiple residences. It conveys I tell, in, as in I tell my story. But it also suggests I count and I matter. And so the phrase Yo Cuento is telling all of those. Right? It's sort of saying, I'm telling my story because my story matters, my story should count. And they were, the blog contributors are refusing invisibility in outdoor recreation and conservation. They're claiming a space in the public discourse and as a material presence as recreators on public lands. Blogs and other social media platforms across the, uh, across the outdoors diversity movement reflect how important representation is to the theory of change that this social movement has. They believe that these, by diversifying
find representations of outdoor recreation. They're building community among Latinx outdoor enthusiasts and creating a space in which Latinx outdoor enthusiasts and Latinx people are seen as environmental stakeholders, right? They're sort of shifting um, this dominant narrative. And Flores and Kuhn argue that Latino outdoors online presence is a specific kind of mingling of new forms of communication with social media and long-standing cultural practices of storytelling. And they point out that Latino outdoors storytelling works to develop the trust and respect necessary to build the Latinx community of environmentalists and environmental professionals. And the storytelling happens both in the organization's virtual spaces and at its in-person events. Such storytelling is an important part of how participants gain a sense of belonging to the places from which they've been historically excluded. And in creating these collective stories of outdoor experiences, they rewrite the social dimensions of physical space. This resonates with the vision Latino outdoors outlines in their theory of change document and their strategic plan. So they list that their intentional outcomes are to increase Latinx access to public lands and Latinx representation in these spaces so that the U.S. Conservation Institute better represents Latinx communities and their investments. They consider advocacy one of four puzzle pieces, so advocacy, community, empowerment, and sense of place. In building visibility and community for Latinx outdoor recreation and conservation, both within and outside of Latinx communities, they build political power for Latinx communities as the environmental stakeholders. That's how they see the work of advocacy fitting into their larger puzzle pieces. They have lots of aspects about the puzzle, puzzle theme. The personal narratives that Latino outdoor participants offer contribute to trans media organizing within the outdoor diversity movement. It's one of my claims I'm working on with the book, and I'm really inspired here by Fletcher Kusana's child's book, Out of the Shadows, which on their work on trans media organizing, and really reading the immigrant rights movement as a movement that engages in trans media. Organizing. Pacific Talk explains that social media media making tends to be cross-platforms of participatory and linked to action. And this is really the same as I think it's out of the immigrant rights movement. really, really comes into how the outdoor diversity is organizing. So it's like the doors. And I'm really interested in getting the individuals toast to the old law of Harley Harley and Zimmerman's line against trans media testimonials. Zimmerman, Zimmerman develops the set on setting for the jobs to train more people organizing to the extent of scholarship on the testimonial genre. And Zimmerman is really particularly interested in the coming out narratives of undocumented all the rights movements, videos, Facebook posts, posts, and Snapchat, perhaps, right, of how their own kind of coming out story. Um, and these um, narratives, narratives serve as a testimonial by the personal narrative, narrative that represents a experience, experience and is and is media, media the way in which the public across social platforms and in conjunction with organizing to create change. change. As Zimmerman, Zimmerman explained up here, here, these digital, digital testimonials used as a way undocumented students participate in counter-public spaces where they can invent circular discourses and formulate positional positions and their identities and interests in their needs. The individual stories are presented on the law, law together to gather the relationship nature and the outdoors that can test testimonies and nature and narration and their racialization as white activities. And such personal narratives across the outdoors and the person, right? 
soulless, you know, up to where my force is going to try to align the next door creation of identity. identity. And, and questions about the period of period will walk away if you think about why I'm using last next, 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 how the causation of each of us about producing a very large identity of the dot of the This, 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 as Boris and Boris argue, we do know how to our social media presence has outdoor events that are complete with shared experience or counter-narratives. Replacing the solitude experience by the individual white backpack presence in a family community and connection. So in this in this next section of what I'm going to talk about, I'm going to extend Boris and Boris's argument to add the Latino Boris to Boris these expanded notions of nature and outdoor recreation part of the heritage heritage that both precedes and exceeds the nation state. That is, that conservation of nature, the realization of names, the fair phrase, is rooted in the transnational experiences of place and place and family. Scholars in indigenous studies, ethnic studies, environmental studies, studies have long critiqued mainstream environmental notions of nature as a term of wilderness that exists in opposition to the human. This notion of wilderness eradicates and heals the cultural memory of the indigenous people, the ongoing dispossession. Allows the land to become a place where the man himself deserves it does not remain the wilderness of an attack. It is conceptually alien to the ship relationally often centered in indigenous ways relating to other than human species. The shift away from indigenous ecological relations altered species compositions across the U.S. as both specific species and practices essential to indigenous cultural and physical survival and act in acting or what J.P.J. terms colonial ecological violence. The proper subject on wilderness has long been quoted in the American cultural imagination as the white man demonstrating physical mastery and moral virtue, be that the role of a pioneer, characterizing the backpacker. The outdoor recreation activities which gained popularity alongside the conservation movement and the cult of wilderness often mimic conquest and discovery or alternatively played Indian in ways that allowed white settlers to claim nativeness and a, which was another move that attempted to erase indigenous claims to sovereignty. Thus the very ways wilderness and spending time in nature for pleasure became quoted as white in the United States reinforces the problematic cultural logic that the proper human engagement with nature is possession, management, separation, and recreation. Simultaneously, people of color have been excluded from nature and outdoor recreation, both materially and ideologically, obscuring long histories of black, indigenous, Asian American, and Latinx relations to and knowledge of nature. Conservation in the U.S. emerged alongside and oftentimes from within eugenicist thought. Nature and wilderness were coded as clean and pure in contrast to people of color, disabled people, and others who were coded as pollutants and with Sarah-Jacquette-Ray terms, ecological others. Throughout the 20th century, Latinxes in particular have been criminalized in nature and depicted as polluting a clean, wild, white space. Racialized discourses of overpopulation and immigration naturalized cultural logic that portrays Latinx peoples as a threat to nature's cleanliness and purity and white settlers as nature's true appreciators. Yo Quinto blog contributors acknowledge the ways that this understanding of Latinx peoples contributes both ideologically and materially to their displacement from nature. 
For example, Filipino-Mexican-American marine ecologist Melinda Belen Gonzalez writes of her field site, which is um, studying a particular crab. White American bicyclists would stop and stare. Some gave me dirty looks, and other times I'd get anxious that they would call the police on me after prolonged quiet stares. New Mexico coordinator Gabe Vasquez explains that his first time fishing in the United States, a fish and game officer showed up, called the border patrol when they realized his father didn't speak English, and briefly detained his father in a jail in Trooper Consequences, New Mexico. He was quickly released because he hadn't done anything wrong. And in the face of this act of exclusion, Latino outdoors insists on Latinx outdoor belonging. This is what the pattern we see in these blog posts, right? People explain how they were sort of forced out, made to feel uncomfortable, or even arrested, and then how they kind of come back and reclaim place in this position. So Vasquez says, despite the harassment, my dad told me to stay strong and that the outdoors were a place for everyone. And they immediately go get a fishing license and go back to where they started. Belen Gonzalez similarly rebukes the intimidation she experiences, affirming that, quote, being in the field makes me happy. In other words, Yoquinto blog contributors frequently narrate attempts at exclusion that expose the political context in which their presence and their pleasure matters. They model a response to such exclusion in their refusal to be dissuaded and in their commitment to expanding access. Contributions to the Yoquinto blog highlight a range of other barriers to outdoor recreation, such as transportation injustice, lack of financial resources, lack of time, and exhaustion from work. Incorporating these barriers into blog posts highlights the ways in which lack of access to nature and outdoor recreation is structural. Systemic racism and structures of environmental injustice result in a magnitude of material barriers to Latinx outdoor leisure. Contributions to the Yo Cuento blog highlight the relationship between these material barriers and ideological barriers. The limited way in which mainstream environmentalists and outdoor enthusiasts define nature and outdoor recreation reinforce and justify these material barriers to Latinx participation. Because of the ways that Latinx people have been alienated from various forms of outdoor recreation and nature, and because of the ways such activities have been racially coded, blog contributors repeatedly confront the ways that outdoor recreation is perceived as a white activity. So according to Melissa Sotelo, and all the quotes I have here are from uh, these 150 blogs, in high school, I would hear other Latinas my age say that Latinos and Mexicans don't camp. We don't do outdoors, and we don't like to be in nature. It was discouraging and at times embarrassing to say that I had a great experience for the time in my life associated with the great outdoors. It was if it was my secret, and the sense of embarrassment, shame, and secrecy recurs across the blogs. Alejandro Granados explained, when I started working in a national park, I had to integrate myself into white culture and outdoor culture which in some ways are one and the same. However, like oil and water, I felt a disconnect between my culture and this culture. In describing her first day hike, Ruby Garcia explains, it was emotionally painful and awkward because nobody on the trail looked like me. That's super uncomfortable, and I was alone on this journey. Everywhere I looked, I saw groups of happy white people with gear. I honestly felt like I didn't belong there, and I felt like I wasn't free to feel connected to that space. But at the same time, I was in awe of my hike. In both Garcia and Granis's posts, white culture and outdoor culture are synonymous in ways that make their own connections to the outdoors, quote, painful, awkward, and uncomfortable. Granis details of forcing himself into a white culture into which he doesn't mix, right, that oil and water language. <coughs> and Garcia describes her experiences alone, while the white people she encounters are in groups. 
And this is a contrast that emphasizes her feelings of isolation. For Soltero, this discomfort manifests as a shameful secret. All three enjoy their experiences less because of their perceived isolation. <coughs> Sorry. They're suddenly very scratchy. Um, they um, is there some water back there? Yeah, is, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, but I want to point out that the easy isolation or the easy ownership that white people claimed over nature and their forms of recreation inhibit Garcia's ability to sink into the awe of her own experience. Thank you. The downsides of the mass is not drinking water during talks. <laughs> so the Yo Cuento blog counters this isolation, alienation, and shame at outdoor recreation by depicting Latinx enjoyment of nature and outdoor recreation as part of Latinx culture and heritage. Right? So it's sort of in response to this sense of shame, embarrassment, and secrecy, there's a reclaiming of this as part of family heritage. And they do this in ways that uh, suggest a heritage that's preceding and exceeding the nation state, right? It's not rooting in a narrative of US nationalism. So Andrea Enger roots her love of wilderness and her Chilean heritage. She says she, quote, grew up getting lost in the wilderness of my native country. And she didn't move to the US until she's 20. So there's a lot of stories of people like this who sort of talk about the, their experiences of nature actually happening before they moved to the US in a common rhetorical strategy that emerges, connection to nature becomes part of a Latinx cultural birthright through family heritage. Quento, uh, Yo Quento blog contributors like Anger consistently establish a nostalgic connection to their homelands as part of a transnational Latinx environmentalist identity. Crystal Salvador Zapate explains that her grandfather, quote, introduced me to quiet walks. The first that I can remember were walks on his farm in Mexico when I was only a toddler. Growing up in Florida, she continues to accompany him on local trails. And she explains, when I got a job as a backpacking guide, he was one of the first people I told. And more than pride, I sensed his envy of my opportunity to wander around in the desert. And given all the popular narratives about immigration and the way the desert is told, these stories where you end up having these lines like, he envied my ability to walk around in the desert, I think <coughs> gain a particular importance. Her love of quiet walks and sunsets arose not from some grand encounter with the US landscape, but from a similarity with her grandfather that she first experienced in Mexico. Her blog post thus offers a counter narrative to popular preconceptions of backpacking as an activity linked inextricably to both whiteness and US national identity. Frank Thomas Cardenas similarly insists that a connection to the outdoors is part of his Latinx heritage, a heritage rooted outside of a US context. Beyond simply rejecting the narrative that links U.S. national identity and whiteness to proper appreciation of nature, Cardenas positions alienation from both land and nature as a consequence of immigration to the United States. He explains, my grandparents knew the gift of nature inherently. That is how they survived. The land offered them everything they needed if they were willing to work hard enough to obtain it. My parents knew its worth, he's talking about them after they immigrated, right? through years of absence, not knowing what they had, but the experiences they now lacked. In contrast to the much, to much media that codes outdoor recreation as central to US national identity, Cardenas figures the US as the source of his parents' loss of access to nature. 
While their close relationship to nature was severed by the circumstances they endured after their immigration to the U.S., his parents insist on offering him some of this access to nature through the trips they took in his childhood. He writes, they were conscious of knowing only concrete and glass. They wanted their kids to see beaches, deserts, and mountains. As a result, Cartinez goes on to figure his love of the land and enjoyment of camping as a form of generational justice. In Cartinez's narrative, immigration to the U.S. enacted not only exclusion from nature, but severed a pre-existing connection to it. Like Cardenas, Margarita Vargas Patron blames internalized white supremacy and financial hardship for obscuring her familial connection to nature, alienating her from both outdoor recreation and her mother. She loves being outdoors, but she considers it a white activity because of financial barriers that prevent her and her friends from going on the family trips that her white classmates experienced growing up. And a conversation with her mother then challenges what she later described as, quote, a remarkably limited idea of outdoor recreation. And she said it was circumscribed by what she describes as her, quote, internalized whiteness. So she asked her mother, why do you think I love the outdoors so much? Like, it's this white thing. Like, why was there camping in her background? Do we have a history of camping in the family? And I have her mother's response up there in part because this is my own translation. So if I've translated it poorly, you can um, note that. Of course, we went to a small house beyond the cornfield. There, your mother, grandmother made dinner and told us stories under the stars. We were going to help with the bean harvest. We did not say camping, and even though we didn't have much here, we did go to the park, the beach, and on walks to get fresh air. You are free, and nature is all around you. Just open your eyes, daughter. So she describes her mother's response as, quote, a dose of healing that challenges the ways that she had, quote, given whiteness all of the power to erase my experiences and define the outdoors. She figures her alienation from nature and outdoor recreation as a kind of wound, and I am um, echoing uh, Ansel Dua here, another manifestation of colonialism and white supremacy. She decolonizes her attitudes towards nature when she divests herself from the attitude that nature and recreation are from white people. In making her mother her source of healing, she finds the tools of this ideological decolonization coming from the women of her family, her mother and her grandmother, who told her stories under the stars. Her previous unwillingness to talk to her mother about her love for outdoor recreation is thus becomes doubly wounding in her story, right? She, so she talks about how she has this shame and she, she doesn't talk to her mother about this deep part of her identity because of her shame and her embarrassment. Then she finally asks this question, gets this response, and rethinks everything she's known. That's the story she posts in her blog. She feels shame for her enjoyment of such a white activity, she, and then she doubly feels shame that her mother was unable to ac offer her access to this white privilege. This shame keeps her from communicating with her mother. When she finally breaches the topic, her mother counters her daughter's previous understandings of nature as limited to the costly forms of engagement in which her white classmates partake. She learns that outdoor recreation and engagement are part with nature are part of her family heritage. For both Cartinius and Patron, and for many other posters um, on the, the blog, uh, rather than a marker of assimilation, outdoor recreation becomes a rejection of the harmful lessons of white supremacy that would further alienate Latinx peoples from the land. These transmedia testimonials allow us to see the ways that structural and cultural barriers work hand in hand and the ways Latino outdoors cultivates a transnational Latinx environmentalist identity rooted in family and place. These structural and cultural barriers alienate Latinx peoples from outdoor leisure, even as the structures of racial capitalism benefit from disproportionate outdoor Latinx labor in sectors like agriculture and construction. In reclaiming a relationship to nature and the outdoors, 
Contributors to the Yo Cuento blog fight against the dominant cultural logic, which further separates them from the land, both ideologically and materially. Melissa Soltano, checking I have the right quote up, um, explains, growing up, I was told the story of how the U.S. bought Mexican land for cheap and the consequence being that the lands were taken. That left the Mexican population alienated and isolated from what was once theirs. There had been a continual perpetuation of that alienation towards lands for many people who identify as Latino Chicano. As Liliani Alala writes, my family has always had ties and connections to the land. And cuando estoy afuera, me siento como que estoy con mi familia, mis antepasados. I feel that I am reconnected with myself. So these Yo Cuento blog posts suggest that ideological displacement from nature works hand in hand with material displacements from land that have happened over centuries of colonialism across the Americas. These material displacements from land resulting from colonialism, neo-colonialism, and environmental violence contribute alongside US immigration policies to a production of a mixed status Latinx workforce in the United States. This workforce exists as part of a long history of racialized populations in the US being incorporated to the nation as laborers while their legal or substantive citizenship rights are denied. Thus, while Latinx peoples are underrepresented in outdoor recreation, they are overrepresented in outdoor labor. Scholars, artists, and activists have long pointed out that outdoor labor provides environmental knowledge and environmental relationships to Latinx peoples and contributes to the development of the environmental justice movement in the US. Right? This is the argument that we see in works of scholars like Laura Polito and Den Von Pena, authors like Sherry Moraga and Helena Maria Vermontes, and artists like Santa Barraza and Esther Hernandez, they, and all of whom drew inspiration from farm worker organizing, especially United Farm Workers anti-pesticide campaigns. Yo Cuento blog contributors highlight the way that outdoor leisure likewise provides environmental knowledge and environmental relationships to Latinx people, right? So that's part of the work. It's not just labor for where we get environmental knowledge, but also leisure. And another way that Latino outdoors respond to the structures of racial capitalism, which push Latinx peoples into dangerous low-wage outdoor work, is that they work to extend the types of outdoor labor to which Latinxes have access. Career outdoors is one of the key labels under which the blog posts are organized, and these careers are often those which offer Latinxes access to higher paid and are higher status forms of outdoor labor. Similarly, the website hosts an opportunity boards that allows people to search for jobs, internships, and other professional opportunities in environmental and conservation fields. Maria uh, Mazimeja and Cynthia Espino Moreo write, we at Latino Outdoors have been able to turn our experiences in the outdoors into higher education and ultimately careers, and so can you. Latino Outdoors not only transforms conceptions of Latinx leisure then, but it also expands popular conceptions of what Latinx outdoor labor might mean. The emphasis on careers troubles the lines between labor and leisure in the US, and it suggests the way that privileged forms of outdoor leisure link to privileged forms of outdoor labor. Moreover, the types of jobs Latino Outdoors promotes increase Latinx access to power and privilege, ultimately transforming the ways that Latinx peoples can show up to the conservation table. While environmental justice organizers rightly emphasize the need to recognize the expertise of marginalized communities as those primarily impacted by environmental ills. This move by Latino Outdoors also <clears throat> acknowledges Latinx expertise as soil scientists, land managers, and environmental educators. It pushes back on a model of diverse environmental inclusion that perceives people of color as stakeholders primarily in the role as victims of environmental harms. 
Contributors to the Oquento blog also identify the ways in which Latinx overrepresentation and low-paid, low-status outdoor labor contributes to Latinx underrepresentation in outdoor recreation. Oh. Quote, I grew up with a narrative of the Latino family doing outdoor labor and not outdoor recreation. My grandfather was a farm worker, my father and mother were farm workers, and the homes I grew up in as a child were more often than not right across an agricultural field. Even though I grew up with this narrative that Latinos work outside and don't really play outside, I have decided to work towards creating a counter narrative where Latinos go hiking, rock climbing, and camping in the deserts. So a huge number of people talk about how their parents or their grandparents are engaged in these forms of outdoor leisure, labor, often farm labor. And Reyes depicts working outside here as the inverse of playing outside. And this is part of a larger cultural narrative in the US that undercuts environmental knowledge and connection that can come from labor, right? As Richard White first pointed out decades ago in his famous essay, are you an environmentalist or do you work for a living? In insisting that Latinx is both labor and leisure outside, Reyes produced a counter narrative that resists reducing Latinx peoples to their labor and provides the groundwork for further recognizing their environmental value and knowledge. Contributors to Yo Cuento blog repeatedly insist on the importance of allowing Latinx outdoor laborers access to outdoor leisure. On one hand, they recognize that outdoor leisure can be less desirable for people who are engaged in hard physical labor, as popular forms of white outdoor recreation can mirror the forms of physical challenge common to industries in which Latinx laborers are so overrepresented. On the other hand, as historian Mario Cifuentes argues, neglecting forms of Latinx pleasure, including the leisure activities of farm workers, neglects the full humanity of Latinx peoples. As Cifuentes contends, quote, Bracero's recollection of their social lives should not be read simply as nostalgia or an effort to mask the exploitation of the past, but as an expression of resistance. Cifuentes maintains that, quote, these small acts of reclaiming space and making themselves visible often led direct often led directly to more organized forms of resistance. In other words, Cifuentes posits Latinx leisure as implicitly resistant to Latinx invisibility and the reduction of Latinx humanity to Latinx labor. It claims social space for Latinx peoples in ways that fosters community, networking, organizing, and ultimately lays claim to a greater political power. In this way, Latin, Latino outdoors emphasis on Latinx leisure challenges the alienation of Latinx labor. This is especially the case when discussing the outdoor leisure of those who engage in farm labor and other low-wage outdoor work. So Noemi Mora, an outings leader for Latino Outdoors in Colorado, prioritized taking her parents camping. Her parents, quote, worked the land, depended on the good rain, had spotty potable water supply, and they navigated rugging roads without hiking boots. I would like for them to have an opportunity where they can sit back, enjoy trails and landscapes that they are unfamiliar with. And it may be striking here, this kind of conjunction of the words sit back and enjoy trails. And that is a pattern, that kind of conjunction appears throughout the blog post. Um, but Moya is emphasizing that outdoor experiences can be relaxing. And that relaxing outdoors is not less valuable or meaningful as encounters with nature that are less physically demanding. And what Moya is doing here is confronting a hierarchy of uses. One of the problems of white mainstream outdoor recreation movement that prioritizes multi-day backpacking trips over day hikes and whitewater kayaking over a leisurely family picnic. Her rhetorical move here fits into Latino Outdoors' larger pattern of expanding notions of outdoor recreation. It also counters the recreation model that historian Cindy Aaron describes, in which recreation becomes more socially acceptable when it can be interpreted as productive. 
In a conversation with Latino Outdoors Executive Director Luis Villa, Outdoor or Outings Coordinator Ruby Rodriguez quotes, posits leisurely outdoor recreation as a sort of activism against a hyperproductive society, a quote, peaceful protest actually. Viewed this way, Latinx leisure becomes a form of resistance to capitalist productivity and to a society that accepts Latinx labor while devaluing and criminalizing Latinx leisure. Leisure, recreation, and camping and vacations are concepts that developed in the US in relation to notions of labor, work, and productivity, right? They're intertwined. In Working at Play, Aaron argues that vacations in the US sit in tension with the American obsession with work. As a result, vacations are justified as a form of self-improvement, spiritual uplift, or education. And paid vacations emerged in the U.S. following, I'm down to my last two pages, so, uh, following research that time away from work improves workers' efficacy, right? That's why they get on board, companies get on board with vacations. Leisure requires justification in a capitalist society culturally indebted to the Puritan work ethic. Simultaneously, as Phoebe K.S. Young argues, recreational camping developed as a classed experience distinct from the camping experience of migrant workers and tramps. Recreational camping blends earlier national agrarian ideas with new notions of consumer identity to become an, quote, obvious performance of leisure. Young contends, rather than mixing labor with land, campers blend leisure with nature in the sense they approach the outdoors as consumers rather than hopeful producers. Latino outdoors production of a Latinx outdoor recreation identity often operates differently than this investment in productive leisure and outdoor consumption commonly seen on uh, in white outdoor recreation. Um, and I'm going to end with a quote that I think gets at that, that concept and I'm, um, from Danny Reyes Acosta. My journey to climbing together with hiking, camping, and snowboarding didn't just teach me that recreation could be a declaration of freedom. It was also an act of dissent, a rejection of a broader system and society that often tore me down and betrayed me. It was assertion to my right for self-care and self-determination. So I'm hoping with that that I've uh, convinced you that these are rich sources that have much to tell us about a reworking of nature, race, nation identity, and that promote a kind of transnational Latinx environmentalist identity. Uh, so it's now about eight minutes to one. Uh, let's open the floor for questions. We'll pause around one o'clock so that people that have to leave can leave, but people can stay as long as Sarah's willing to talk to us. So questions for Sarah. Thank you for a really interesting talk, Sarah. Um, I have two questions. Um, one is if you've looked at gender in this, because you talked about redefining you know, the white solo guy in the wilderness. Um, so there's some interesting gender stuff, I think, in some of your narratives. And second, um, I wondered if you could make connections with the ways that groups like Huerto de la Familia um, and also this new project, it's called Anahuac, is out of Capaces, one of the Pecun spinoff organizations. They purchased a 120-acre farm, and farm workers are doing sort of spiritual, cultural, all kinds of activities there uh, in a sense of, again, re, you know, redefining. It's not, I'm not sure they would call it leisure in the same sense, but relationship to land um, in terms of redefining some of these spaces from farm, you know, farm worker spaces to farm worker creative spaces um, and also in work. Yeah, those are great questions. Um, in terms of gender, yes, that's really central and also sexuality. I mean, Latino Outdoors, uh, I don't know if I have the, one of their 
there, you can see here, this is the, that's their picture on Facebook. Right. So the majority of, a little, I would say three quarters of the posters are self-identify as women. Uh, significant numbers of the posters identify as queer. Um, and there's definitely the way you can sort of think about the immigrant rights movement as having a lot of queer youth at the forefront, the outdoor diversity movement does as well. And a lot of the posts around, there, there's not a lot of talk about gender in the posts by people who seem to be identifying as straight men, but there's a lot of very explicit sort of redefining of, of freedom and, and taking up public space and sort of what people think they can and can do, not do in posts by um, queer contributors and by women. And I think that's part of the work um, in the, and oftentimes the folks in Latino outdoors are going to, um, they're meeting with the folks from like unlikely hikers, um, from Aria has this force of nature campaign where they made an explicit commitment to change 50% of their ads on outdoor recreations. They're like committed to having women in them. So they're meeting with folks who are thinking about different access of environmentalism. And I, I would sort of say that part of how I think this connects to other 21st century forms of environmentalism is it fits into what Leah Thomas describes as intersectional environmentalisms. And so I think that is coming out in, in the way that the the folks who are involved in this. And I would also say in Latino outdoors, it's it's intergenerational, but the actual volunteers are almost all 1.5 or second generation. Um, so they're not third, fourth, fifth generation by and large, and they're not um, uh, first generation. Um, uh, 1.5 generation meaning folks who were had their like, childhood in um, Mexico or Chile, and then they had their sort of adolescence and their adulthood here in the U.S. Um, in terms of the other question, that's super interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a great co connection. Um, Kata, the farmer organization I worked with in New Jersey, was doing a similar thing. They were really investing in community um, gardens and, yeah. and, and organic gardening for farm workers, and I really hadn't thought about that. As I hadn't kind of figured out how to think about the growth of these community gardens and organic farms that farm worker organizers are doing, and it makes it makes fantastic sense to think about them as aligned in the sense of sovereignty and pleasure and in the way that this these same groups. I, I love that connection. I want to put a lot of more thought on it. Thank yeah, you for that. Yeah. By design, your presentation, both visual and oral, is mostly about the Latino and Latinx experience or non-experience of the land or peculiar experience of the land. But in passing, you did also refer to black and indigenous. I didn't catch Asian, but uh, Asian may be included or excluded, as the case may be. So my larger question is, are these groups overlapping, or are they individual, and how are they different from one another in approach? Yeah, so um, my larger project is engaging with the broader outdoor diversity movement, and my Training has been in Latinx studies and Asian American studies. So those are the frameworks I'm coming from. And so for me, one of the things I've worked on with this project is that black activists have been front and center of this work for so long, but my training is in, in black studies. Indigenous activists have been front and center at challenging white environmentalism for so long. That's not my training. So thinking about how I want to approach that in the project. Um, so, but these, uh, Indigenous organizers, I would say, fit into a slightly different category um, in terms of the, the work that's going on with tribal sovereignty and co-management. Um, 
So there is a group called Native Outdoors, but the folks who run it, have, there's a certain amount of controversy around it. Um, in Asian Outdoors, Outdoor Asian, sorry, it was specifically modeled on Latino Outdoors and Outdoor Afro, and specifically was both trying to create a space for Asian American recreators and also trying to enact a kind of solidarity. So I think a lot of the folks, particularly when you think about Asian Americans um, and outdoor recreation, they're, um, they're both thinking about the lack of representation of Asian Americans in these places. So like six, 7% of population in the US is Asian American, but they're 2.3% of national park employees. Um, but they're, so they're sort of thinking, and there's all this anti-AAPI hate that's creating uh, around COVID-19 that's creating a lot of these outdoor spaces is particularly unsafe, and that's the kind of theme that comes up there. Um, there's also a law, a shared history of sort of racial scripts of Asian Americans and Latinx peoples. So Asian Americans in the sort of 19th century were doing a lot of outdoor labor. Um, and so reclaiming that history as a way of reclaiming a place in the nation and sort of countering this idea of being a perpetually foreign as part of how these organizations are thinking about the work that they're doing. Um, and I also always want to mention, whenever I mention Asian Americans and outdoor recreation, somebody says, but that's not talking about international folks, right? Like everyone knows that Yellowstone's being run over by like Chinese tourists. <laughs> so I actually looked into the numbers on this, and that is just not true. There is a widespread perception that Chinese international tourists are overrunning national parks. But actually, so about 13, if you look at just Yellowstone, which is the most popular park for Chinese tourists, 13% of outdoor recreation um, of, of visitors are international. Two thirds of those visitors are from Europe and Canada. So um, when you actually talk about the number of Chinese visitors to National Park, you're talking about 2 to 3% of the visitors. And if you add that with all Asian American visitors, and if you like combine Asian American visitors and Asian visitors, it's actually less than the number of percent of Asian Americans in the US. And so I think there's a story there. So I think there's, I guess what I'd say is, I think there's certain incommensurabilities between the groups, um, but there's also a lot of shared conversation, right? These people, right, they're, they're folks we know. They're meeting with each other. They're going to. They're in active conversation with each other. Um, they're reading the scholarship that comes out about them, um, and and having these conversations. And so even something like how the outdoor diversity movement is engaging with settler colonialism, I've seen that completely transform since 2014, 2015, and is now is much more conscious. And people are really sort of thinking about like the people for global majorities. And Global Environmental Summit actually really like had as one of their themes, like how do we think about settlers of color in the outdoor diversity movement, which I thought was super interesting. So let me just pause here so that if people who need to leave now can leave, and then we can keep talking to Sarah. Yeah, sorry, I thought my answers are a little long-winded. Good. I would have had a question, but I, you know what it is. Which <laughs> 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 is, I mean, thank you so much. That was beautiful. <laughs> Are we able to start asking you? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. You have um, my permission. Thank you, Sarah. It's awesome hearing your work in this format, too. Um, I really uh, like what you said about uh, sort of the Latinx movement um, reclaiming the outdoors as a space for family and thinking of so like, how did that shift? Like, my indigenous friends, like, they camp as a family, which usually to like go berry picking or to go to salmon camp or elk camp or for ceremonies. 
And thinking of like the Sierra Club, of course we have John Muir going off as this white dude on his own. Um, but in the 20s and 30s, we had the Sierra Club going to Yosemite as big groups and bringing costumes and doing plays and singing around the campfire in this big like community event. And right after the Depression, we had white people camping because they were so poor and they were migrants essentially having to camp um, and in the outdoors, um, you know. And then in the 70s, we had this large backpacking movement, but um, and that was usually like cut off jeans and whatever you could slap together to get out there. And then now it's shifted. Is it all because of capitalism or? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say the outdoor recreation industry has a lot to do with it. I'm trying to think about, so Phoebe um, has this brilliant book about the history of camping. And she actually ends with the Occupy, in DC, the Occupy movement was on uh, national park land. And there was this whole big thing about whether or not the Occupy movement counted as camping. And so whether or not they were, or they counted as a protest because there were different roles, whether they were camping or protesting. But as probably everyone here remembers, there were like sleeping in tents. So like it was this um, whole big debate um, that changed uh, the permit process. Um, and so I think part of that story is in her books. I'm trying to remember what she said about that. Um, and you know, we still primarily imagine car camping as a sort of nuclear family activity and a marker of, of particular kinds of class. So it's sort of who's camping, how they're camping, how families define um, where people are camping, what they're calling it. Um, I'm thinking about. Uh, I'm thinking about a study by a social scientist whose name I'm forgetting right now, maybe Deborah Chavez, who looked at where Mexican immigrant families in Los Angeles were going, and they weren't going to the places that white families were going. They were going to places that reminded them of their very particular hometown. So it wasn't even just the same place. And so, you know, then raises this question. So if you've got someone there trying to figure out how many people are camping and they're standing at a campground and counting demographically, which is how a lot of these studies are done in the social scientists, but they're actually not going to the place where people are going. You know, I know Dave Vasquez deeply believes that the numbers on Latinx recreators are totally wrong because of who's doing the counting, how they're counting, and where they're counting. Um, same as like, you could get a different number if you ask um, people, you ask black people if they go hiking, they're going to say no, but if you ask them if they go for walks, they say yes, right? So, and so I think there's also a as a humanities person, I guess, I have a deep set of suspicion of how these numbers are created and what the story they tell, and that may be part of the, the story you're telling too, right? Yeah. Did it actually, is there a change in over time, or is there a change in the public narrative that gets reinforced by the scholarship we all do? So, sir, I've got a question for you. You mentioned at the beginning, you, one of your motivating questions was, is this a model of neoliberal multiculturalism? And I was just wondering, so you, you've just taken us through one of the case studies. Where do you come out on that question? Uh, you know, I think it, it is varied. I think that I'm coming out with the idea that it's happening in different places. So the first piece I published on this was on the American Latino Heritage Fund which of the National Park Service, which is a private-public partnership of the National Park Service um, and uh, nonprofit uh, and, and foundation. It's like takes, it allows them to get money that the National Park Service as a government agency can't get. And they hired a boutique organizer, right, an advertiser, they go and say, hire somebody who like you hire to get people, Latinos, to buy your brand to run their outreach program to Latinos. And it's sponsored by Aramark, who we all know from prison labor, but also the private park concessionaire and REI. And so there's absolutely these visions of um, neoliberal multiculturalism that's at work in the 
project, and yet it's being contested from within as well. So Latino Outdoors gets like tons of recreation or money from REI and Keen, who and you know REI and Patagonia and these organizations that will just straight up say to New, there's a quote from New York Times I think from one of the high ups in Patagonia that like they're crying to create a market um, for the selling the products. Um, and yet the actual organizations taking the money aren't necessarily doing the same thing. So I guess I'm, I'm coming to the point where I think there's a lot of different things happening within one social movement. And I want to try to create a book that's nuanced enough for that space because I think it's very easy. I'm finding in my own writing, I'm struggling against creating a straw man where I'm like, this is all neoliberal multiculturalism that's just like replicating capitalism, colonialism. Or the version of, it's all like resistance. Look at this radical imagination of alternatives. And the thing is, it's a social movement, so it's doing both at the same time. Um, and there's even sort of political hedge, uh, like heterogeneity between something like the Oconto blog, which is crowdsourced, and the organizational decisions of um, Latino Outdoors. So Latino Outdoors, if they're doing an official organizational thing, they almost always have a land acknowledgment. But when you're looking at the Oquinto blogs, there's not a single land acknowledgement. But these are like people who are part volunteers who are like, I'm going to tell my story. And so it's really not appropriate for me as a, A, as an academic and B, as a white scholar to sort of sit there and be like, well, why isn't this 16-year-old performing a particular kind of political analysis? Because that's not what the blog is trying to do. And so I don't know if that, that answers your questions, but I'm trying to figure out how to write the book that allows that level of political nuance that doesn't actually have to fall into either of those camps that seem kind of like strawmen to me. Cool. Good, good idea. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Other questions for Sarah? Well, throughout your presentation, I was uh, intrigued by the representation of how uh, one slice of the culture experiences public lands, uh, canoeing, uh, camping, hiking, uh, snowshoeing, etc. And I know that all experiences are different because they're individual, but my introduction to fun activity on public lands was planting trees. And the group uh, Cooter said, uh, this is a fun activity and you will enjoy yourself and you'll be in the uh, outdoor air and it'll be very healthy. And it was, but I would have to say it was rather strenuous because uh, one had to clear the space to plant the tree, and for lack of a better term, that involved bushwhacking and clearing a space to actually plant the tree. And then uh, the soil in which the tree was going to be planted was not our sort of Willamette Valley loam. It was something which had to be attacked with uh, not mechanical tools, but with pickaxes to clear the space to plant the tree. And so after several hours of this activity, uh, I have to admit that I felt healthier, I was stimulated, was very active, but I wouldn't exactly describe it as a leisure. It was a volunteer activity. And at the end of it, the organizer said, uh, did you enjoy yourself? And I said, well, yes, in a certain way. And he says, well, next week we are building and reclaiming trails. Would you like to join us? <laughs> so, yes, I think that people have different sort of avenues into what can be done on public space. And I 
applaud the promoters of this activity because they said it was fun, it will be healthy, it will be something that you will enjoy. But it was not really the sort of camping, canoeing, uh, Zen meditation on outdoor experience either. Yes, and I really told that I remember showing up my first year of college, and joining the environmental <laughs> orientation trip, and they sent us out to do blackberry removal. <laughs> um, and so, but so it wasn't necessarily fun, but I left with this sort of feeling of, oh, I'm helping save the environment, right? I had this sort of narrative about what it meant to be doing that kind of work outdoors, and it's really, and I think that that is really different from the kinds of, right, outdoor labor, right? Like, can we... Right. Volunteering at a garden is very different from being a farm laborer, even if right. you, maybe you're both picking blueberries. Um, and, and so how does one set of labor activities get labeled as a good thing you do because mm-hmm. you're a good person that mm-hmm. wants to save the earth and the other gets seen as a sort of um, working class, not as admirable, mm-hmm. even though like they're strenuous, like the right, that seems like they're similar in certain ways, and yet the, the cultural value of in the story story we tell about them is so different. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess a, a big dividing line, a clear one, is that what I was doing was strictly voluntary and absolutely unpaid. In other words, what you get is the experience. Uh, you don't get any sort of monetary remuneration or uh, goods in trade or something mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. I think that's a clear dividing line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a question. Um, if you voluntary class, um, can you talk a little more about like how the term transmedia emerged and like what other environmental justice grassroots movements um, were talking about in relation to like transmedia studies? Yeah, I mean, in terms of that term, I've only come across it in reference to this particular book on immigrant rights organization. And both the work on immigrant rights cite this book and cite that phrase, but I haven't seen it taken up by the environmental justice by scholars who study environmental justice. Um, so I think you know part of what I'm doing by applying it to this is sort of suggesting that it can be understood in, in context to other movements, but I, I wouldn't say that I've seen other scholars use it. Mm-hmm. Please join me in thanking Sarah Wolf. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs>